Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. Repugnant markets. Should everything be for sale? I don't approve of the sale of cigarettes. I don't approve of the sale of sex. Does that mean you shouldn't have the freedom to buy them from a willing vendor? We don't sell Tic Tacs, for Christ's sake. We sell cigarettes. And they're cool and available and addictive. The job is almost done for us. Doesn't our repugnance suggest there's a moral problem? Or maybe it clouds our judgment about what's right and wrong. Isn't repugnance culturally dependent anyway? How does it make sense to find eating dog meat repugnant, but not eating pork? Pigs are filthy animals. I don't eat filthy animals. Yeah, but bacon tastes good. I ain't eating nothing, I ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. Our guest is Nobel laureate Alvin Roth, author of Who Gets What and Why. Repugnant markets. Should everything be for sale? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. What's so bad about buying and selling things like sex or kidneys? Should absolutely everything be for sale? Or are markets in some things too repugnant to even allow? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're thinking about repugnant markets and asking, should everything be for sale? Well, obviously not. People shouldn't be for sale. Well, that's the easy case, Deborah, because nobody can own a person. You can't sell what you don't own. But if I can own it, why can't I sell it? Well, you do own your body. Yet in many places, selling sex is prohibited. Well, but the question is, why should it be? Because it's degrading. Oh, that sounds... I don't know, outmoded Puritanism, Deborah. I, I, I must, you surprise me. If two consenting adults, or even more than two consenting adults, want to trade money for sex with each other, whose business is it but theirs? Look, a lot of women go into prostitution because they're desperate. Banning prostitution protects them. Protects them from what? Themselves? No, no, now you're sounding a little paternalistic, Deborah. Oh, come on. From pimps, from exploitation. It's about respecting human dignity. Well, well I'm all for dignity. I'm glad to hear that, Ken. <laughs> well, but but the, my question is, what do our feelings of repugnance have to do, really? What do they tell us about the dignity? Well, people have visceral reactions to violations of dignity. And, and you trust those visceral reactions? Uh, come on, people used to find the idea of selling life insurance repugnant, of all things. It put a price in human life and then place a bet on when the life would go, expire. They thought that violated human dignity. And people once found the very idea of interracial marriage or of gay sex repugnant. What about that? Well, okay, I grant you, those aversions were irrational, but we've made a lot of progress. Uh, maybe, but the, this idea of progress 
presumes that our aversions, our patterns of disgust, track moral truth better than their patterns did. Why, why, why should you think that? I think that they do. But why? I mean, come on, take California. The voters of California, their infinite wisdom, a few years ago banned the sale of horse meat for human consumption by a referendum. Why? Well, because eating horses is disgust us and disgust us more than eating cows. Really? Look, I'm not saying we should always trust our visceral reactions, but we shouldn't totally ignore them either. Sometimes they're trying to tell us something morally significant. Maybe, maybe, but you know, the problem is that what seems morally significant to you I mean, that seems so morally significant to me. It's so subjective, Deborah. Why should the and, and besides, given that, why should the fact that other people find something degrading, say, like selling sex, determine what I can buy or sell, especially if I don't find it degrading and neither does my economic partner? You know what? It's not just about you, Ken. When you buy a gas-guzzling car or you smoke cigarettes, you impose costs on other people. Oh, okay. I get that point. You're talking about what economists call externalities, right? I mean, harmful harmful effects imposed on third parties who are not involved in some economic transaction. That's precisely what I'm talking about. And I'm saying that when markets impose externalities, we have a right to regulate those markets, or sometimes even to ban them altogether. I get that point, Deborah. I'm not denying that point, but it sounds like you're implying, I don't know if you mean to, that your disgust at my economic choices is an unacceptable externality. I uh, I shouldn't be free to sell my own body parts to a willing uh, buyer because it makes you oh so squeamish? Look, it's not the squeamishness in itself. It's The fact that I feel squeamishness is because of the violation of dignity and justice. Wait wait a minute. Slow down. Thousands of people languish on waiting lists for kidneys, hoping against hope for a kidney so they don't die. And they're languishing all because people with delicate sensibilities find kidney markets all repugnant. You call that justice, really? Look, is it justice if poor people have to sell their kidneys and only rich people can afford to buy them? Well, maybe some poor people wouldn't be so poor if they could, like, sell their kidneys to the highest bidder. You know what, Ken? That's repugnant. (laughs) Kidneys should go to the people who need them the most, not to the people who can pay the most. Look, look, I'm not a worshiper of markets. Anything goes markets. I grant you they need to be well-designed, they need to be well-regulated, but the problem is we can't just let mere squeamishness keep us from even trying to make markets work. Look, I admit that as long as markets don't diminish human dignity, they're important social institutions. They can do good things. Okay, so I think I think I see a way forward here. So if we could find a way to strike just the right balance between respecting human dignity and letting the market operate efficiently, maybe maybe we could agree. So so, well, how do we do that? You got an idea? Ken, that's a complicated question. And to show us just how complicated, we sent our roving philosophical reporter Liza Veal who spoke to someone who took a deep dive into the ethics of buying and selling human organs. She files this report. Alexander Berger remembers when he first started thinking hard about inequality in the world. He was a college student taking classes in philosophy and social justice. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about, like, sort of, what are my ethical obligations to the world? Obligations to the global poor? And what should I do with my career? And how could I have the most positive impact in the world? This kind of thinking led him to certain action. He remembers learning about factory farms and becoming a vegetarian. 
He also learned about the shortage of organ donations. So even though he didn't know anyone that needed one, he decided to give up one of his kidneys. Part of the way I thought about it was like kind of a, a relatively like easy, cheap way actually to help somebody else. You know, by bearing a one in 3,000 risk to myself, I could really like give somebody else 10 more years of life. His kidney to him was an abstraction, not something he'd miss or even know was gone. Some people are like, feel like much more connected to their bodies than I do. Like I think like Catholic bioethicists like feel like there's this like really important like sanctity of the body as a whole that I don't identify with that much. So he decided to do it. He'd undergo a surgery and a reasonable recovery period and the recipient, a middle school math teacher in rural Pennsylvania, she has two teenage sons, would be able to get off of expensive debilitating dialysis and would expect to live decades longer. It was a gift to her and her two children and everyone who loves her. It's beautiful. And yet, every year, fewer than 200 people in the U.S. are like Andrew, altruistic donors, meaning that they donate while they're alive to a stranger. This despite the campaigns to promote donation. I've been waiting 123 days for a heart transplant. 736 days for a heart. I've been waiting for a heart for 500 days. There are tens of thousands of people on the waiting list at any given time. Berger understands that most people don't think about this problem like him. I feel like I'm the weird one and, and the idea that like I sort of have this like burden of like consistency and of like really thinking things through. I think I kind of recognize that that's not how most people are approaching the world. If there were a legal market for organs, some argue, we'd be able to increase the supply to help meet demand and save lives. But the camp standing in opposition is equally passionate. A donor is a patient. He is not a piece of meat or a piece of Lego. Dr. Gabriel Danovich is a professor of medicine at UCLA and a representative of the Declaration of Istanbul, which calls for the global prohibition of organ trade. That means black markets and even legal ones like Iran's. It's a medical procedure with complications. As a doctor, Danovich says paying for organs compromises his work. It puts doctors in the position of exploiting people who need money. Because while altruistic donors almost always feel good about what they do, basking in what he calls a halo effect, when people give up organs out of financial necessity, he says they experience it as harm. Those who have donated for money uniformly have depression, impaired self-worth, increased incidence of divorce, etc., etc. He believes money also compromises the safety of the procedure. Organs from paid donors, they're much riskier because paid donors, when there's money involved, may not be telling the truth. Meaning they may not disclose their risk factors if it could prevent them from being approved. But most of all, he just doesn't believe it will work. He predicts that legalization wouldn't result in more organs becoming available. Commercial living unrelated donation displaces non-commercial living unrelated donation. It doesn't add to it. It takes away from it. That's because people only give up organs for their loved ones because they have to. When a market is introduced, data shows that people will use that market and opt out of unpaid donation. Though with any of this data, it's hard to compare legal and illegal organ markets in other countries with hypothetical ones in the U.S. But fundamentally, Danovich says it's cruel and repugnant to decide as a society to exploit the fact that some people have to resort to selling their body parts. If we want to help poor people, he says we should help poor people, not offer them money for their organs. Is that a society we want to live in? That for a poor person in order to pay for their mortgage? Is that our response to our society? That because you're foreclosing a house, you're going to sell an organ? That's the argument that counts when it comes to public opinion. 
But the problem with this argument is it's hard to pin down what makes paid organ donation different from any other paid labor. Almost none of us do what we do for money freely, and plenty of it involves bodily risk. We do it to survive. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beal. Thanks for that moral-enriching tour through the world of uh, organ donation around the world, uh, Liza. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my uh, Stanford colleague, Deborah Satz. And today, our topic is repugnant markets. Today, we're joined on the air by Al Roth. He's professor of economics at Stanford University and winner of the 2012 Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on market design. He's the author of a large number of influential papers and books, including the recent book, Who Gets What and Why? Al, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. So, Al, uh, I know you started out as an engineer. So I'm wondering, how did you get interested in designing markets rather than things like cars? Because that's what engineers do. Well, I studied a kind of engineering called operations research, which in the 1970s was mostly concerned with the operations of companies and uh, single-minded organizations. And I was interested in how people cooperate and coordinate with each other. So I was naturally led to things like studying markets and how they should be designed to work well and, and fixed when they're broken. Ellen, the opening section, Ken and I went back and forth as to whether repugnance has a legitimate role in limiting markets. What do you think? Well, let, let me try to answer first as a social scientist. It has a big role in limiting markets. You can't think about designing and changing the way markets work without coming into contact with the fact that markets require social support in order to work well, and uh, transactions that are regarded as repugnant don't have social support. So, uh, yeah, and I was reading some of your work about this, and the number of historical examples in which our repugnance to the idea of buying and selling stuff some stuff that we now routinely buy and sell has like prevented people for like centuries from uh, buying and selling those things. Could give us some examples of that. Well, charging interest on loans is is one. We could hardly have the global capitalist economy that we have today without a market for capital. I know the Bible says something about usury, but was it just religious scruples? Why did it take so long for people to? Well, I, I think that as capital started to accumulate, people had had scruples about making money from your money, using your money to make money. So I want to push on the opposite side of the equation here because there are also a lot of markets we should have found repugnant oh, that's true and too. we didn't find repugnant like the buying and selling of human beings. Slave markets. Right. Slave markets were seen as legitimate. You know, kids were sold. There were a lot of early markets that we, you know, we allowed that now we think it was a mistake to allow. So yeah, so, what's up with that? So I want to ask more about, I want to underline the point of the question that I asked you. So you answered the descriptive um, answer about the role repugnance plays, but I'm interested in the moral uh, if there's a moral justification for that role, not just describing the role, but actually evaluating when it's appropriate. So, so <laughs> economics is about how we get together to improve our welfare. And of course, there can be moral dimensions to whether our welfare has improved. So I, would, I certainly wouldn't rule out a, an appropriate role for repugnance in limiting markets. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about markets and their limits with Al Roth from Stanford University. Why do people have such diverse reactions to different kinds of markets? Is there really a moral difference between selling a kidney and selling a car? 
And who decides when we disagree about what's repugnant? Markets, morality, and disgust. Plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. She wanna sell my monkey. She wanna sell my monkey, but that'll never do. If her selling your monkey is giving you the blues, maybe the monkey shouldn't be for sale. I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and today we're probing the idea of repugnant markets. Our guest is Al Roth from Stanford University. He's a Nobel laureate in economics and the author of Who Gets What and Why. So I want to pick up on the kind of question Deborah was getting you to address. I want to put a different spin on it, though. So our ancient, uh, our, our predecessors, there were things that they wouldn't buy and sell that we gladly do. There were things that they would buy and sell that we wouldn't, like slaves, human slaves, children, child labor. Okay. From an economist's point of view, is this just, oh, well, fads change, culture changes, or is there some principle that we should we can appeal to to say, well, those things should be marketed and those things shouldn't? Or is it just, you know, the culture, the fads, the emotions of the moment? So trade in slaves wasn't trade that was voluntary on the part of every party. So I think it's very different to talk about trade in slaves than to talk about whether if you wanted to give me a kidney, whether I could pay you for it. Yeah, yeah, very different. But I'm still wondering, okay, so let's rule out the case of slaves. They were really bad about that. But I still suspect there are things that we think shouldn't be marketed that they marketed and things that should be marketed that they wouldn't. And I want to know how to decide. What's really the role of repugnance in deciding what it's legitimate to buy and sell? Okay, I want to also just, um, because you said... Uh, rightly, that the slave market wasn't a voluntary transaction between two parties. The notion of voluntary is a arguably a normative, it's a moral idea. And there's a question when somebody is desperate, whether or not a, uh, an exchange that somebody makes in conditions of desperation or very asymmetric bargaining position is really best understood as a voluntary position. Mm -hmm. So do economists think about this? If you're thinking about markets as voluntary transactions, do you kind of probe what you mean in these cases by voluntary? I think I think economists think about that at least a little bit. If you point a gun at me and say your money or your life, that might at the moment, be a voluntary transaction, but you pointed the gun at me. There's there's mm -hmm. a problem there. Yeah, but I I still I want to get back to Okay, yeah, I get that. So we could we could probe the notion of voluntary, but it's not that anything voluntary goes in terms of whether we find it repugnant. Kidney markets, let's well, you might say they're desperate, but take go back mm -hmm. to the example I read about in your thing in, in life insurance markets, right? I mean, some insurer sells me insurance, I buy the insurance. It's all voluntary, right? I buy it with the idea of insuring my family's well-being after. The repugnance doesn't have to do with the non-voluntariness of it, right? That's right. Repugnance doesn't only have to do with non-voluntariness. Yeah. But I thought we are trying to f think about, or the question you were asking was about the legitimacy right. of repugnance. And you might think, you know, if you want to, like, when is it legitimate? One reason it might be legitimate is when it um, 
leads to third-party harms, externalities, which we mentioned before. Another reason might be when it's picking up something about the background conditions under which people are transacting that is problematic. And people are really repugnant because of the either unequal bargaining position of the two parties, where they think there's some unfairness, or because they think there's desperation involved in the transaction. Well, some of the arguments that are made along those lines could be and sometimes are addressed at any form of trade. Mm -hmm. And by and large, as an economist, I'm I'm here to tell you that a lot of the progress that human beings have made in the last 10,000 years since the invention of agriculture come from trade. So, of course, we we, we legitimately think about limits on trade, but we we shouldn't draw too broad a brush. But but wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. I I I, I want to get at this legitimacy thing in another way. Here's something else that happened. Think kidney markets, right? Many people, I was reading the script to some friends, and I read our opening question, should sex and kidneys be free? They were like, yuck, right? Okay, many things we think shouldn't be for sale. Why? Well, you could donate. You could donate your kidney. Nobody goes yuck at a donated kidney. They go yay to the kidney donator. Why is it so? That's if it's out of altruism, people say yay. But if I'm out of uh, uh, an economic bargain, where my self-interest is implicated, people go boo. Why is that? Why is it worse to do something out of uh, self-interested calculation than to do that very act out of altruistic calculation? I don't know the answer to that, but surely that was part of what was at issue in thinking charging interest on loans was was illegitimate. It was that somehow money is a uh, a different way of relating to each other than than some other kinds of relations. Right, and we do think that you know money can be an inappropriate um, way of relating. I could bring you a bottle of wine for dinner, or I could write you a check. Yeah, um, that's and true. those would seem like very different acts. Yeah, that's true, but that, it doesn't seem. If I were to write my guest a check, <laughs> my host a check for the dinner, that seems crass <laughs> or something. I don't know what it seems. It seems really inappropriate, but not repugnant in the way that kidney sales sales are. So I want to go back though to. So uh, you responded to the worry about background unequal conditions about trade by saying, look, but trade has produced these wonderful things. And I grant that. But sometimes what the repugnance is telling us then is if we want to allow the trades to go on, we ought to attend to the background conditions and we ought to make the background conditions fair. We ought to care about making sure that people aren't in desperate conditions so that they are, you know, find themselves in a situation where they have to put their kids to work um, or they have to sell an organ in order to survive. It's certainly good to try to address those conditions. It's not always clear that we should wait until those conditions have been addressed to address the problems of the people who, who have those difficulties today. Obviously, it would be great to have a cure for kidney disease so that we didn't need to do any transplants. So, Deborah, I want to uh, ask you a question. Do you believe in what I think Leon Cass calls the wisdom of repugnance, where our repugnance is like this is this indicator, this non-rational indicator of the moral good and the moral bad, and we should attend to it even if we can't fully justify it? You know, I think that lots of our repugnance is irrational. So I think we want to, you know, actually distinguish, you know, when is there something behind the discomfort people feel with a certain kind of transaction and what what is the basis of it? And then can we address it? Sometimes we can address it through regulation. So, for example, by 
um, you know, externalities, we can price the cost of the externalities and absorb them into the market. Sometimes we can't. And, you know, in those cases, we have reason to worry. So, Al, I wonder what you think of that kind of answer as an economist. I mean, how does the economist, I mean, the philosopher is going to worry about what the repugnance is telling us and when it's a legitimate indicator and when it's an illegitimate indicator and when we should ignore it. That's what the philosopher is going to worry about. But what about an economist? Are you going to worry about that? I, I worry about that, but I notice that repugnance is highly variable. So here in California, surrogacy is fully legal. In other states, it, surrogacy is legal, but you can't pay for it. And in uh, other countries, it may be entirely illegal. So it's not a human constant that we all find the same things repugnant. Which makes it very hard for you as an economist to deal with? Is that what you're saying? It makes it hard for me to think that repugnance itself is a reliable guide. Right. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about repugnant markets. And Michael, all the way from Boston's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Michael. Hi. <clears throat> I'm wondering, or I've often wondered why, at least what in America is called a libertarian, in Europe it would be a right libertarian, uh, is not an anarchist. Because uh, you were talking, the economist was talking about things being voluntary and about the progress that has been made because of trade, but why should those be given any particular weight? You know, it, what, makes something, what makes something a societal value? What, what makes a society? Mike, I'm not quite sure I get your question and how it relates to our discussion of uh, repugnant market. I guess it's, it's like the question of repugnance, in a way. Um, because that, it's in the eye of the beholder, how can the society regulate it? Is that your question? Kind yeah, of? if the objection to repugnance is that it's so variable, so has been repugnance at the notion of things being voluntary. Okay, th th thanks a lot. Well, I don't think voluntary voluntariness is quite in the eye of the beholder, but, uh, but, the, but the underlying question is when we have these contested things, right, where you have one view and I have another, uh, what are we supposed to do, quote, as a collectivity in terms of regulating these? Or, well, I mean, do you have a view about that? So I think some things are widely reviewed, viewed as having improved our welfare. A baby born in the United States in 1900 had a life expectancy of 40 years, and today it's more like 80 years. Uh, I'm not a philosopher, but I think that's a good thing. Right, although, I mean, I do too, and philosophers think that's a good thing too. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just want to, in, in response to the caller, I mean, markets are always regulated. I mean, you know, there isn't any such thing as a market without property rules, for example, you have to have rules about who owns what and who can do what with what. So, you know, markets always, you know, uh, as you know, the saying goes, market bargaining happens under the shadow of the law, right? There's well, no... Well, right. It, libertarians, I, I know, they're a little confused when, they, when it comes to this <laughs> question. But we got another caller in the line, uh, O.V. Baker in Oakland. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. What's your comment or question, O.V.? Hello, thanks for uh, taking my call. I had, a, I had a quick question. The question is that uh, I, I wanted you to comment on Carl Polanyi's notion of fictitious commodities, namely labor, and I think he also meant labor and land. And uh, I hope everybody is very familiar with Carl Polanyi's ideas on fictitious commodities. I hope you... Yes, it's familiar with that. Does that, that have something? Does that have something to do with our show, our episode? 
Yes, it did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. 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 Yeah. Thanks for the quote. So I can I can respond to that. Um, you know, Polanyi has this view that labor markets and land markets have are different than other kinds of markets, and you know that was a view that Adam Smith held and. Um, Ricardo thought there was something special about land markets. So, but but the kind of analysis that was given is very consistent with this idea of externalities and um, feedback effects and inequality. So there were you know dimensions that we've already touched on, but that that Polanyi thought were especially salient in labor markets. So that the sale of human labor. So the sale of human labor is a it, repugnant market. It can be a repugnant market yeah. because there's yeah, yeah. a feedback loop on the way labor is bought and sold can actually change the worker. Right. Right. So a right. slave is different than a free laborer, right. even though both in both cases you're exchanging a kind of labor. I think the point there for our discussion is that poorly structured, without the right kind of. Uh, guarantees and res- that will give us respect for human autonomy, blah, 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 any market can be a degrading thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, markets have this intrinsic potential to, de- to degrade things. What do you think of that lot? Uh, well, I'm a market designer, so I certainly think that markets need effective rules. And, uh, you know, there's a great quote from, from Hayek in uh, The Road to Serfdom in which he says that uh, the, the, what he calls the liberal, uh, the, a big enemy of the liberals are the people who, who cry without thinking laissez-faire because markets need rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, think I mean, think about labor markets. I mean, I suppose there's a kind of Marxist, Marxist thought. I mean, I Marxist Marxist I understand him going back to Marx thought that capitalism was a great progressive force in a way, but it was also it also had the seeds of its undoing partly because of the nature of labor within a capitalist economy and 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 wage labor and all that. What do you think about thoughts like that? So, it turns out to be hard to put absolute values on things and the the sort of labor theory of value is one that's hard to incorporate with all the different modes of production. On the other hand, there it's clear that that we want to regulate and and think about how markets work when we're concerned about things like inequality. Right. So okay, we got call caller. I'll take this caller right before the break. Dave in San Francisco, what's your comment or question? I'll be quick. A lot of people think selling kidneys is a bad idea. Suppose uh, somebody had lost a finger in an accident and they wanted a replacement finger and their surgeon thought that was feasible and I wanted cash because I needed it and was perfectly happy to part with my little finger uh, for cash. Uh, I think many of us would not find that repugnant. And my question is... I would. <laughs> I, I think I would, too. <laughs> what's, what's I question? might as well. What's your question, Dave? <laughs> question is, why, why is it different? I think part of it is that it's overt, mm-hmm. it's open. Everybody can see I sold mm-hmm. my finger. It's gone. Uh, it's not like a kidney. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a pretty predictable effect. That is, if you sell your kidney and then your other kidney goes bad... That's a very bad outcome, whereas if you sell a finger, you pretty well know what you're getting into. Yeah, Dave, thanks for the call. I don't know about you you guys, but I would find somebody who sold their kid uh, fingers kind of perverse. I don't know. What do you think? I believe that teeth used to be sold. Le- the, you know, uh, Emmanuel mm-hmm. Kant talked about this. Right. 
And hair, you, you know, hair is still sold and used to be sold. No, I could hair s- grows back. I could mm-hmm. see, I could see selling. Right, right. I could see selling rather than donating blood. Right? You want my blood? Give me some money. I'll give you my blood. I could see that because it's a replenishable supply. Well, you know, why not the, blood markets? There's a do big, people have objections to blood markets? The they do they- indeed, and and in most places, whole blood is given voluntarily, but plasma is sometimes bought and sold and sometimes given for free. Canada is just in the process of passing laws against paying for plasma, but Canada buys tens of millions of dollars of plasma products each year from the United States where where it's okay to pay donors. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're exploring the topic of repugnant markets with Al Roth, author of Who Gets What and Why. Can we change the way that people react to markets? And can we make repugnant markets less repugnant? What should we do when repugnance prevents a useful market from forming? Making moral markets, when Philosophy Talk continues. If there's a willing buyer and seller for everything, does our repugnance at the sale even matter? I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and our guest is Al Roth from Stanford University. He's the author of Who Gets What and Why. So, Al, I know you've been working on the uh, kidney markets and working on ways to allow kidneys to be traded between people that overcomes this repugnance. I want, to t- I want you to tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to expand the discussion more broadly. Okay. So kidneys are a little special because healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with just one. And so if, if you're as healthy as I hope you are and you loved someone who needed a kidney, you could save their life by giving them a kidney. But sometimes you're healthy enough to give a kidney, but you can't give it to the person you love. And if I'm in the same situation, it might be that I can give a kidney to your patient, and you can give a kidney to my patient, and, and we can save two people's lives that wouldn't otherwise So we trade donors in a sense, right? Yes. Right. So, I mean, that sounds cool. Is that legally problematic? I mean, it's not quite a kidney market, but you're giving this person a value, something in exchange for that thing of value. It's a little bit like... So, so it wasn't clear whether it was legal. The 1984 National Organ Transplant Act says you can't give valuable consideration for a kidney. But once kidney exchange had started happening in the U.S., the Congress passed an amendment called the Norwood Act that says uh, that sentence about valuable consideration doesn't apply to kidney exchange. How, how big can these um, trades go? How large? Well, if we, if we have a non-directed donor like Alex Berger, sometimes you can form a long chain, and the longest chains have had now 70 or 80 people in them, so, so I, half transplants and half... I uh, would wonder if I were this believer in slippery slope kind of arguments that this is the entering wedge of, like, kidneys being available in an open market to any... to. Uh, to somebody who needs a kidney. I mean, right, here's a kidney. You got a donor that needs this kidney. They can't get yours. Okay, okay, then we'll just take away that donor. You need, you need a kidney? It seems like uh, it's the opening wedge. Why shouldn't well, I believe such things? Well, I'm not sure that you shouldn't believe them, but if you do believe them, it shouldn't be kidney exchange that bothers you. It should be living donation. Yeah. Once there's living donation, there's the possibility that you paid the donor, and 
American hospitals work hard at, at filtering out paid donors, but but surely they're not 100% successful. But why successful. shouldn't we worry if um, uh, kidneys are distributed from poor people to rich people, if that's the implication? of? I mean, that's part of what people are worried about because, you know, your kidney exchange seems, I think, like a really great thing and probably doesn't elicit much repugnance. But put cash into the equation, and then people are going to be worried that you're going to have rich people buying all the kidneys up and poor people selling them. And shouldn't we be worried about that? Before you answer that question, I want to just get the empirical question. Is it true? I mean, has anybody tested the hypothesis that this kind of exchange does not elicit repugnance, the repugnance that open markets would? Is that true? So the the Norwood Act that said it wasn't illegal was passed without dissent in Congress, so it didn't seem to elicit much repugnance among Americans. But in Germany, kidney exchange is almost non-existent because the German law says you can only receive a transplant from a member of your immediate family. And while a judge can make an exception to that, there are very few exceptions. So you mean that if your mar- even your mechanism would be prevented by German mores or norms or something? Unless yes. it's all uh, relatives. Unless, yes, right. yes. Well, but if you wanted to give a kidney to your brother yeah. but couldn't, and I wanted to give a kidney yeah, to my I brother, see, you could. they wouldn't allow me to give a kidney to your brother right. without a judge intervening. So, so that's – okay, so – it might still be regarded repugnant in some places, though less so in, say, the U.S., the kind of exchange yeah. that you're talking about. But then Deborah's issue yeah. about... Well, so so just speaking about kidney exchange, we, we've recently started to do international kidney exchanges and have exchanged with American pairs and Mexican pairs. And that has aroused fierce opposition in Spain, but great support in Mexico. So mm-hmm. once again, the the theoretical question of repugnance seems alive and well in Spain, but in Mexico, where Mexican families are being helped by this, uh, it seems to be and enthusiastically is, uh, so received. So, could you explain that? Though, is the reason why the um, Spanish are finding this objectionable is that they're worried about third world to first world kidney? Yes. Okay. So, do you think there's anything? to worry about here. You haven't really answered if the inequality component of this is a worry and if it's something, if you are for, you know, a kidney market, how would you address, and and you think this is a worry, how would you address that worry? Well, I think that in the long term, we have to make sure that the the third world donors and patients do as well or as close as possible to as well to the American donors and patients. That is, we're treating them like Americans. And in the United States, kidney exchange is a standard form of transplantation today. I'm going to play the obtuse devil's advocate just for a second because of something Deborah said to me in the opening, and I'm actually wondering about it. I don't. I, I get her point, but, you know, if a kidney is a thing of value, and I have this thing of value— it's valuable to me. I don't want to live with one kidney. You know, that's not my first choice. But if I have this thing of value, right, that lots of people want, why can't I put it out to bid to the highest bidder in an auction? I, th- that does seem to me repugnant, but it also seems, well, wait a minute. Why am I letting that get in my way? This poor person has this thing of value. If I said to the poor person, hey, you can't bid out your labor to the highest bidder, right? If they weren't forced, if they were full information and consultation, why not let them just sell it to the highest bidder? 
So I think the slippery slope argument is the most compelling. Supposing we have a recession, a long recession sometime in the future, and a conservative political party is in control of Congress, when it comes time to extend unemployment insurance, as we habitually do when when there's a long recession because there's no employment to be had, uh, you might have some congressman saying, you know, we don't have to do that. These these people aren't really poor. They could sell their kidneys. Yeah, I know. That 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 would be really bad. That would be awful. But still, when in times of scarcity, scarce goods get more expensive, right? So there are two things. I think there's the worry that Al just mentioned, which seems like a real yeah, worry I get, politically. I get that. But there's still the question, should kidneys be distributed on the basis of will of ability to pay as opposed to who has the most urgent need and you know right. i mean supposing rich people want to collect kidneys as like art objects on their wall and they're willing to pay a lot of money to buy them right and then they just like display them or maybe they want to destroy them we don't think that's appropriate we don't think people should be able to buy these things and like burn so them so that's or equality them. on the on the right side as it were on the on the demand side but it's right? also about what's the norm that ought to govern how these things are distributed i, I get uh, that i get that i i i, I get so that's a distributive concern for distributive justice and that seems right but there's another concern for autonomy in the face of a market that places a value on a thing that I can put to that market. That seems to me a competing concern, but we let the distributive justice concern override that autonomy concern. I, I don't know how I think about that. Well, so I think about markets as having components of both supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, right now, one of the big problems in the developed world is uh, a shortage of supply of organs. There are 100,000 people waiting for a deceased donor kidney transplant this morning, but uh, we only do about 13,000 of them a year, so the wait is long and dangerous. Thousands of people die while waiting. Um, but we give out the available kidneys according to bureaucratic administrative ways that are designed to be equitable. So one thing you could do is not have individuals negotiating over kidneys. You could allow the federal government to be the buyer of kidneys in the United States and then distribute them the way we distribute right, kidneys that, now. The technical term for that is a monopsony. Um, but here's a slippery slope concern. Could somebody be worried that once you allow the government to buy it, somebody might say, like, why can't I buy it? Mm -hmm. And incidentally, there are black markets around the world where... Uh, black markets around the world. That's another thing. If wishing it were so could make it so, that is... Uh, that's one of the about prohibition and the drugs. We think, oh, we're going to outlaw the selling of drugs and we're going to put prison sentences around there and we're going to outlaw the selling of liquor. Yeah, right. You know what What happens? We just drive it to the underground economy. We drive. We're going to outlaw the selling of uh, sex for, for money, uh, uh, trading of sex for money. You know what happens? It still happens. It goes to the underground economy and all these other social costs but, come to bear of imprisoning and policing. It's a mess. But yeah. sometimes we do close down a black market. So if I think about the markets in child labor, that's been pretty okay, okay. effectively closed down okay. in the United States. But sometimes, sometimes not. I'm going to focus on the sometimes yeah, not yeah. and like bound to fail, right? So what do we do about that when we say, oh, let our moral scruples get in the way uh, of allowing drugs to be bought and sold or sex to be bought and sold or kidneys to be... And all we do is say, okay, black market, do your darndest. Right. So I think we're pretty much agreed that using heroin is not good for anyone. And we have laws against it with heavy penalties. And the theory behind those laws is that no one should use heroin and the prisons should be empty and there should be no overdose deaths. And as you 
pointed out, philosophically speaking, that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think it. I think that it's our obligation to think about what we should do in the situation we're in. Which means to say, I think our aversions, our ati- our atavistic aversions and repugnance and disgust, can only be the entering wedge to the conversation. That once the conversation gets going, they have almost no real weight. That that's a provocative thought, but I think we should just leave them behind. What do you, what do you think about that, Deborah? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, but I want to say they're a beginning. You know, they're a beginning that maybe we dismiss because we think, you know, in the end there's nothing behind it. It's irrational. It's like why um, distinguish between eating horses and eating cows, that there's really no good reason. It's the opening wedge. But sometimes, we're, you know, we're picking up on something else like an externality, like some potential for harm, like background conditions that are problematic. Yeah, I think we agree about that. But what do you think as the economist? Let this be the opening wedge of a conversation, but not the end of it. I think that's a good formulation. I think in thinking about repugnance, it also helps to think about paternalism. We, mm-hmm. we often don't like you telling me what I shouldn't do. But if you didn't tell your children what you shouldn't do, we might take them away from you because you'd be yeah. an irresponsible parent if you let them play on the freeway. So, Al, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining us. This has not been a repugnant conversation. It's been an uplifting conversation, and I've really enjoyed it. So, Thank, thank you. you. Our guest has been Al Roth. He's a professor of economics at Stanford University. He's a 2012 Nobel Prize winner uh, in economics, and he's author of Who Gets What and Why. So, Deborah, you got uh, a last thought? Uh, it's a complicated question. I do think, you know, the idea of, you know, ban or not ban a market is just a, you know, it's it's too uh, flat a landscape yeah. that we really do need to think about market design and ways of, you know, responding to some of the worries about markets through sophisticated design. I totally agree, and I'm glad there are people like Al who uh, uh, win Nobel Prizes for doing <laughs> such a thing. But I do think it's important for the public. I, I think people think, uh, not rationally, of their own repugnance, their own disgust as an economics externality. And we got to get people beyond that. Okay, yeah, you don't like it, but that's only the beginning, not the end. There's a lot more than your repugnance at stake. And your repugnance is not an unacceptable externality. But you know what? This conversation continues. Actually, it's already started at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers, where our motto with apologies to Descartes is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, by some miracle, we'd <laughs> love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org. And if it's a good question, we might even feature it on our blog. You can also become a partner in the community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, here's someone whose speed is downright repugnant. It's Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, lately I've been seeing the term late-stage capitalism quite a bit, which allegedly refers to the times in which we are now living, but I'm not sure what it means. Is there a next stage? Will capitalism emerge from a cocoon like a butterfly that we can't afford to own? Evidence of late-stage capitalism is everywhere, it is written, like the scooter thing, for instance. Suddenly, there are scooters everywhere, littering the streets of American cities as a disruptive boon to a perceived pedestrian crisis. We are walking too much, so let's figure out a way to make five bucks or so from yuppies, bros, and hipsters who just don't have enough apps on their smartphones and are tired of walking three blocks from the barista to the workspace. Bird is the name of the startup company behind the scooter eruption, called enthusiastically the Uber of scooters, whatever that means. 
Bird has already raised $100 million. In California, by the way, it is a scooter law that you have to be 16, have a driver's license, a helmet, and you can't drive scooters on the sidewalk. All things Bird has no control over, doesn't care about, not their problem, as once again, our irritating tech culture throws monkey wrenches into common sense for the sake of a fuzzy future goal that people of America neither requested nor desired. Did we? I don't remember a vote. Maybe that's why we have Trump. Scooters and Ubers and Airbnbs keep getting thrown at us. The sharing economy, what's being shared? Nothing. We're just expanding the bandwidth of that which can be rented. Who needs a good-paying job when you can put a bed in your living room and lease your Escalade on the weekends? Don't have an Escalade? Loser. And that's our late-stage capitalism right there. It costs 10 bucks cheaper to go to the airport, but it takes an hour longer to get there. And we're getting a whole new species of middlemen where none were needed who became millionaires through algorithms. Who's making a living? Not me. The beleaguered lower and middle class decided to fight fire with fire. You like disruption, smug white boy? Here, have a Trump. And here we are. Seems to me obvious, though, that scooters and dense urban environments are not necessarily a good idea, especially since robot cars are just around the corner. I smell a collision course. Of course, it's hard to tell what's a good idea and what isn't. Cars were a great investment for years. Today, not so much, unless they're electric. And even there, it means giving all our money to Tesla and Elon Musk, which is fine now, but in 15 years, he could run for president. How many unhinged business titans can the Oval Office take? We also used to invest in cigarettes, and when those proved problematic, and vaping. So we'll be pouring money into marijuana, and as always, the accompanying lawsuits. Again, as always, a cash cow for somebody, no matter how things turn out. Used to invest in 3D movies, which were a bust, now a cool idea, until they won't be again. Movies are going away, music is going away, books are going away, magazines, newspapers. We just stay home and Netflix. That is, until Comcast, Disney, and Amazon merge. Then all the movies will be nothing but Avengers and Star Wars, and if you want something else, we'll have to leave the house. Of course, by then, scooters will be passe, replaced by turbocharged Barca loungers. Powered by vocal commands, not our commands, of course, Siri and Alexa. We'll no longer have feet. What do we need feet for? Walking is for saps. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, Local Public Radio, San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Carola Kreitmeier, Angela Johnston, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners in our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on the program don't necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or any of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Deborah Satz. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. How on earth would Big Tobacco profit off of the loss of this young man? Now, I hate to think in such callous terms, but if anything, we'd be losing a customer. <laughs>